Now, um, here's what I want to do. Everyone's, uh, you're fellowshipping and getting, getting something to eat and, and settling back in. Listen, I want to make sure I covered that intentionally fairly quickly because I want to be talking to you about redemption and about Hebrews and the relationship to the Old Testament. Do you have any, any, anything that was unclear or perplexing uh, from what I covered? Because I, I, I think I maybe did go a little fast. I thought I'd only been going for 30 minutes and it was an hour, and I'm sorry about that. Um, but um, what, were there any, are there any questions on, on what we're after here? Um, there are things that, that we can say in addition, but here, here's the basic thing that I, I want to, um, to help you see, and the, the basic point that we're after, and let me, let me put it in, in, in a simple recapitulation, a, a recap of what we did. What, what Adam and Eve and image bearers are created for is worship and rest in the presence of God. And that worship and rest is being brought into the, the we, if you want to use m language from one of my mentors, Meredith Klein, the upper register heavenly glory temple of God. That's where image bearers belong. Um, to, to remind you from what I talked about when I was here last time, Eden is not where you want to spend eternity, pre-fall Eden. Why? You've got a, the serpent is going to sift you like sand. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil casts a shadow of death for disobedience over you. You are toiling and guarding and working in Eden in conflict with the serpent. And what is the end of that conflict? Sabbath rest being brought bodily into this heavenly glory dwelling of God and seeing that glory and worshiping and communing with God. Were there any, was there anything that was uh, a, a snag of any sort that was unclear or anything you'd like additional clarification on? Okay, now, when we think about redemption then, when we think about redemption... I'm not going to have time to do this. I'll, I'll just have to reference what we did last time when we looked at Genesis 3. But here's what I want you to appreciate. The moment that, that Adam and Eve sin against God and he comes in judgment, what he does, if you remember, is he pronounces a curse on the serpent and makes a promise to Adam and Eve. And what is the threefold substance of that, just to review? that one will come from the seed of the woman and he will bruise the serpent's head, 3.15. That Adam and Eve and their posterity are then covered with garments of sacrificial animals that, that provide clothing and image endowment in the likeness of the coming Messiah who's going to do what? Just like the animals pour themselves out their blood is poured out in sacrifice. He's going to pour his blood out, cover over his people with his, um, with his uh, atoning sacrifice, endow them in his image likeness. And then in 323 and 24, which we looked at, what will he do? He'll pass under the flaming sword of judgment, and he will eat from the tree of life. And where will his resurrection and fruition be in heaven. He will ascend up into heaven. That's the embryonic form of, of the gospel, and we looked at that last time. Now, what, what I want you to see here is that this image, this mountain image, and fellowship with God on the mountain of God and the stones of fire, this was not the final place of worship, Sabbath rest was. Now, after the fall, I'm going I'm to erase this. After the fall, I want us to look at the way this mountain image becomes prominent in the typical Old Testament redemptive economy under Moses. I want to talk about the Mosaic Covenant 
and I want to try to relate some of the themes that we've looked at uh, briefly in Genesis 2 and Ezekiel 28 to what we have with Moses and Mount Sinai and Moses' function. Now, if you would turn to um, Exodus 32 through 34. Um, I need to set the scene here in terms of, um, uh, in terms of what's happening. And I, I want us to be thinking about Moses and especially the way that Moses here becomes a type of Christ. Now, here's, we're going to slow down some now. I, I gave you the Genesis material to get you oriented. And now we're going to slow down and look uh, carefully at the way Moses typifies Jesus as a high priest who grants access to God and, and fellowship with God. Now, the, the narrative here is, is a little, it's too long to read the whole thing, but let me just, if, if you've got your Bible open, Genesis, Exodus 32 opens with the sin of the golden calf. The, the, the sin of the people worshiping the golden calf. And what, what's so heinous about this is that God, I, I want you to think about this, what has God done prior to this? Now think. I just want you to think about this. In, in um, Exodus 2, 25, Israel is groaning in oppression under Pharaoh. They are crying out to the Lord for deliverance, right? And what does the Lord do? The Lord remembers the promises he made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He remembers the promises that he made to Adam and Eve in the garden. And what does he do? He hears his people. He sees his people. And what does he do? He bears his mighty arm and he begins to redeem his people out of bondage and out of oppression in Egypt. And what does he do? He, has, he sends Moses to talk to Pharaoh and says through Aaron, Moses through Aaron, speaking to God, what? Let my people go that they may worship. That's critical. That's in Exodus 4.23. What is the purpose of the exodus out of Egypt? Why? It is so that a people might be delivered into the presence of God and worship Him in the splendor of holiness. Exodus 19.4, in fact, says this, I have brought you on eagle's wings out of Egypt. Where? to myself. And, and so you have those ten plagues culminating in the uh, death of the firstborn. And the Lord tells Israel to, to eat Passover and to place the blood of the Passover lamb over the thresholds of the doors, the doorposts, so that the destroying angel might not destroy and then the Lord, hovering over his people in a pillar of fire by night, a pillar of cloud by day, accompanies them, walks them through the waters of the Red Sea. They pass on dry ground. He closes the waters back over on Pharaoh and his army. And in Exodus 15, um, in the Song of Moses, what do you get? You get an interpretation of the Exodus as the salvation of God. The, the, the Exodus event is, from one standpoint, the paradigmatic event of salvation in the Old Testament. Why? You've got to hear this. Because God is translating a people from a realm of bondage into a realm of rest and worship. It is a movement from bondage and sin to emancipation and worship and rest in a land where God dwells. And no sooner has God 
spoken to his people. And in, in Exodus 20 said what? He said, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt with an outstretched arm. He gives them the Decalogue. And the Ten Commandments are the terms of communion with God. You cannot have communion with God unless you are trusting in His promises and obeying His law. No sooner does this happen than Israel, while Moses is speaking to God, does what? This is what's so insidious. Makes a golden calf more than likely in the image of the gods in Egypt, where they had been redeemed, the place from which they've been redeemed. And they are saying, Aaron is saying, Behold your God who brought you out of Egypt. Now I want to tell you something. That is absolutely unfathomable given all that the Lord has done for his people. And so what, what happens in, in the book of Exodus here is that Moses, when he's speaking to the Lord, finds out that the Lord is angry. What does the Lord say in Exodus 32, 7? I'm just trying to give you a little background. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves and turned aside and are worshiping a golden calf, calling them their gods. So what, what does Moses do? Moses now begins to take on, and I want you to see this, Moses uh, uh, especially as you're starting to move into um, verses um, 11 and following, Moses begins to take on the role of a mediator figure. And you've, you've, got to start, you've got to appreciate this. Moses understands that the wrath of God justly is coming upon Israel for a heinous sin that in, in, in so many ways kind of reenacts the sin of Adam and Eve in the garden, worshiping the creature and not the creator. And, and, it's, and what you have to start to grasp is that Moses undertakes, especially in verses um, 21 and following, to intercede for Israel. And what, I, what, what we have to start to appreciate is that in the, in the context of, um, of, of this, of this uh, situation, while Moses was with the Lord and the people's sin, God's wrath is breaking out against them. And the question is this, will God's wrath consume his people in justice or will it not? Moses undertakes something and you've got to appreciate this, that is absolutely unprecedented in the Old Testament scriptures. Moses says, if, if you'll look here um, with me, look, look in Exodus 32.30 and 32.32. Um, Moses said to the people, you have sinned a great sin. And now I will make... I will go up to the Lord. Where is that going to be? It's going to be Mount Sinai. I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. You might want to flag that in your, in your text. So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people has sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold. But now, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, Please blot me out of your book that you have written. Now, what's happening here is this. In Exodus 32, uh, 30 and 32, Moses begins to intercede. This is the language I want you to get. He intercedes on behalf of Israel as what I'm going to call a heightened type of Christ. And I'll explain what I mean by that here in a second. He is a heightened type of Christ. And in Exodus 32 through 34, Moses is going to make intercession 
square. He's going to make intercession on Mount Sinai. And he's going to do it in a way that brings into view the Lord's redemptive relationship to his people. So this is, this is the context. Moses is going to ascend the mountain, and he's going to in, ascend the mountain as an intercessor and as a mediator. And what I want to tell you is in this event, you're going to get an anticipation of what the book of Hebrews is all about. It's going to be about the intercession of one greater than Moses, and it's going to bring into view fellowship with God on a mountain. So here's what I want you to appreciate, and I'm going to go slowly and be very direct. Uh, I, I kind of feel sorry for moving so quickly on the past, but I just wanted to give you the, the Genesis scaffolding to see where this mountain theme is going to go. But here's what I want you to appreciate. Moses in Exodus 32, verses 30 and 32, makes one thing absolutely obvious, and, and you've got to to remember this. Israel is not in a covenant of works with God. That's the last thing that is happening. It is not the covenant of works that you found in the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Why, why do I say that? Well, the um, Moses here is going to go up to the Lord and make atonement for sin. Now pause for a second. In your Bible, you should have that highlighted with something along the lines of this beside it. What? <laughs> Moses? The, the man who is going to strike a rock twice and not enter the promised land? Moses is going to make atonement for sin? Well, what does that underscore? It underscores this that the relationship the Lord is in with Israel is not a covenant of works rooted without modification in the Adamic covenant. It is a covenant of grace that brings atonement for sin. And in this case, through the person of Moses. And that language, atonement for sin, is directly correlated to the sacrificial system. If you turn over... Uh, you don't have to, but if you turn over to Leviticus 1.4. No, no, I, I thought that guy's voice needed some work is what I was thinking. <laughs> I, <you know. laughs> uh, um, but listen to this language. This is Aaron and um, burnt and sin offerings. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering... And it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Now, please understand this. In the Levitical order, atonement was made by the blood of animal sacrifices as they were types of the coming Messiah. I know that's basic. I know it's rudimentary. But you need to appreciate that. What we have in Exodus 32-30 is Moses making atonement for sin. Now that ought to make you ask this question. With what will he make atonement? Right? If you're in the Levitical order, it has to be, uh, Hebrews 9.23 summarizes it, uh, pardon me, 9.22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. So Moses is now going to intercede, and he's going to make atonement for sin. And this atonement for sin underscores the fact that, that, that Moses is doing something. And, and you, you tell me if, if I'm wrong. I've taught on this long enough. I'm pretty sure I'm right. But if you can think of a counterexample, do. This is absolutely unprecedented in the Old Testament scriptures. There is no one who seeks to make atonement for sin without an animal sacrifice being present. Certainly not up to this point, and certainly not um, 
under the Levitical system. So in an unprecedented way here in 3230, Moses is seeking to secure the forgiveness of sin without offering a sacrifice provided for the law. So 3230 and the atonement for sin is associated with Moses' person and work. This is very, very unique. It's unprecedented, in fact. Now, what can we make of it? Well, in Exodus 32, 32, you get something of the nature of the atonement. So 3230 is that atonement for sin will be made. 3232 is how. And what is the how? Look at this. Moses says, forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of the book that you have written. What is that? Here's what it is. Moses asks that if God will not forgive the sin of his people, that he himself undergo the curse along with them and ultimately in their place. Take me, blot me out of the book that you have written if you will not forgive their sin. He asks, in other words, something that is absolutely unprecedented in redemptive history. Now, my favorite theologian, I'll just tell you who my favorite is, um, is Gerhardus Voss. I think that might not be a surprise. I love Calvin, love a lot of other theologians. Voss is my favorite. And he's got a book entitled Biblical Theology. And listen to what he says about Moses in this text. I find it remarkably insightful. On page 104, Voss speaks of Moses from this narrative, in fact, from these two verses, 32.30 and 32.32. And he says this. He says, Moses, quote, acquires typical proportions of an unusual degree. End of quote. Now, you, you read through that and you say, hmm, that's interesting. What is he after? What does he mean? Well, here's what he goes on to say. And he's quoting especially these two verses. He says, Moses intercedes for Israel after the commission of the sin of the golden calf, and that by offering his own person vicariously for bearing the punishment of the guilty. End of quote. If you're interested, that's on page 104. Now, what does that tell you about Moses. Let me tell you what I think it means, and you're going to have to you, you think this through with me, and we're going to work on it tonight. I will keep track of time. Well, we're going to work on it tonight, and then we're going to work on it tomorrow for some time. Moses is interceding according to an order different from Aaron's. Tell me if that's not clear. He's interceding according to an order of priesthood that is categorically different from Aaron's. And let me give you an example of how. If Aaron were with Moses, or Aaron were going to do this, and Aaron were going to go meet with the Lord, what would Aaron do? He would take an animal that was holy according to the standards of the ceremonial law, and he would offer that animal as a vicarious sacrifice on behalf of God's people. In fact, think of Exodus um, think of Leviticus 16. What does Aaron do on the Day of Atonement? This is, this is the ritual that is annually performed before Israel. Do you remember what he would do? He would take his hands, place them on a head of a scapegoat, and press his hands down and confess Israel's sin over that goat. Doing what? Symbolically transferring Israel's sin and guilt to the scapegoat. And then what would he do? 
He'd have that scapegoat taken outside of the holy place, outside of the courtyard, and into the wilderness to bear away the sin and guilt of Israel, and it would die in the wilderness with Israel's sin and guilt transferred to it. And then what would he do? Take a second goat, and he would slaughter it. And he would take its blood, and he would enter into the most holy place one time a year, and he would sprinkle that blood before the mercy seat to propitiate or satisfy the wrath of God. In both cases, Aaron has a sacrificial animal or a substitute that he is offering, either in the form of a scapegoat or in the form of uh, uh, an animal whose blood is shed. Moses does not have an animal. He does not have a sacrifice. He does not have a substitute. He offers himself. And, and, and what this brings into view here is the offering of something distinct from the Levitical order that starts to bring into view a priesthood of a different kind. You know what it's called in Scripture? It's called a Melchizedekian priesthood. Let me give you an example. I want you to think, just um, so, so you can see this, when the author of Hebrews describes the sacrifice of Jesus, a long time ago, I don't remember how long ago this was, I think I preached a sermon on Hebrews 9 here a while back, what, what does the author of Hebrews do? If you want to look at that text, the author of Hebrews says that um, under the Old Covenant, the high priest, 925, would do what? He would offer, literally in the, in the Greek text, he would offer alien blood, foreign blood, blood that's not his own. And he would offer that sacrifice once a year. And so when you're thinking about the Levitical order, two things come into view. The first one is that the Levitical priest was distinct from his sacrifice, right? He, he did not ever offer himself. He offered sacrificial blood, not his own. The second thing is he had to do it over and over and over again, it was annually repeated. Why? Because by the shedding of the blood of goats and bulls, nothing is made perfect, Hebrews 10.4. It's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls in themselves to take away sin. So they are repeated until the coming of one whose blood is effective. And so in, in that order, Hebrews 9.25, the high priest enters the holy place yearly, and he offers a sacrifice with uh, strange blood, blood that is not his own. And, and, and let, me, let me tell you something to note about this. And, and, and if this isn't clear, you stop me, okay? Because I want to make sure this is clear to you. But together, the high priest and the sacrifice conjointly typify Christ. Right? Because what did the high priest do? The high priest conformed to meticulous ceremonial cleansing. He obeyed the ceremonial law of God and in terms of human standards perfectly. And what, what we could say is he followed the positive precept of the ceremonial law without blemish. Um, of course, his motives were never perfect, but he conformed to the requirements in terms of being clean. Let me ask you this. Did he shed his own blood? Not ever. In order for that to happen, in order for blood to be shed, he offered blood that was not his own. So, so in his, as he follows all of the regulations prescribed for the high priest, he is a type of Christ who will conform perfectly to the positive demands of God's law but he only partially typifies Christ. Why? Because while he obeys the positive precepts of God's law, he doesn't offer himself. When the animal is sacrificed, that animal 
performs a different function than Aaron or the Levitical priest. The animal is a substitute who bears the wrath of God and the guilt of sin, and the animal performs a function that the Levitical high priest cannot perform. He bears away wrath and curse. He becomes a substitute and sacrifice on behalf of Israel. And in that way, the animal typifies the death of Christ as a sacrifice and substitute. So the high priest and the animal sacrifice together typify Christ. They typify his work. Because what does Jesus do? Jesus, as a high priest, according to Hebrews 9, Jesus does what? offers himself once for all to take away sin. Now, do you hear the difference? And do you start to see what Moses is typifying? In Jesus' case, he offers himself on behalf of the people. In Aaron's case, he offers an animal sacrifice. So what is Moses starting to do? Here's what I'm wanting you to see. Moses offers his own person vicariously. And as he does so, he becomes a heightened type of Christ. And as a heightened type of Christ, he is a precursor to the Melchizedekian priesthood of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? Do you see how that starts to come out there? Isn't that amazing? Right there in the context where the Levitical sacrificial system is being put in place, Moses, as it were, bursts forth with a priesthood of a different order. Now, here's here's what I want you to start thinking about with me. This is Moses as he is coming into the presence of God and entering up on Mount Sinai. And... He's doing this on behalf of others. For what purpose? Well, here's here's what I want you to see. Moses is doing this in large part so that he, as a high priest, can secure what? What is is he after? Well, let let me give you a text. That might prove useful here. Look in verse, um, um, just Moses' intercession. Look at, in, at 33, 12 through 14. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me, yet you have said, I know you by name, and I found favor in your sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight and consider, too, that this nation is your people. And here's the key. Look at verse 14. He said, my presence will go with you and I will give you what? Rest. Moses is making atonement sin, offering himself, and the key that's starting to come into view here is, um, is in 33, 14, presence and rest. What is the covenant between God and his people about? Finding rest in the presence of God. It's not about atonement per se. It's not about forgiveness of sins per se, although those are there. But atonement and forgiveness of sin are a means to an end of the presence of God and the rest that comes in the worship of God. And so the point is that Moses' mediation is a heightened type of Christ that is aimed toward securing an ongoing bond of communion and fellowship with God. Knowing his presence 
and being led to a place of rest. Now, it's just, it's just there now in Exodus 33. And we're going to look at um, 11 through 13 that this typology gets even more heightened. I've only given you, look, I've given you about this much of it. There's something greater and richer about the typology of Moses as a type of Christ that's, that's about to, to transpire. But do you see it so far? Israel sinned. God's wrath is going to break out. Moses goes to make atonement by offering himself. And as he does this, he's a priest of a different order. He's interceding not the way Aaron does, but the way that Jesus will. He's not an Aaronic high priest. He's a type of Christ. He's a Melchizedekian high priest of sorts. And the goal is to bring the presence of God and the rest of God to the people of God. Now, here's where the typology gets even more heightened. And um, we'll go until 8.33 or so. Um, something like that. If, if I'm like I was last lecture, it would probably be 12. But um, um, I'll lose track of time. But um, let, let me just, let, let me help you see something here. And this is going to start. Now, right now, if, if we're doing this the right way, are you already thinking of Jesus when you're hearing Moses? Good, good, good. Because that's, that's how your whole Bible should be. You should have even been thinking about it when we were doing Genesis. You should have been going, mountain of God in heaven? Adam was supposed to go there? Jesus is the last Adam? Hmm. But now it's going to get even clearer. Because here's what I want you to see. And this is, I guess... Uh, um, I'll, I'll make this, and, and I'll, I'll try to have a cliffhanger, so you might want to come back tomorrow. Um, when, here's what I want you to see. Look at Exodus 33:11. We've said Moses is a type of, of Christ as a Melchizedekian priest. He's going to offer himself. He's going to make atonement for sin. I'll talk to you about how that happens a little bit later. But what's so unique about Moses is not just that. There's something even richer, something even better. When Moses, verse uh, 10, all the people would see the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and all the people would worship each at his tent door. So the people would worship from a distance, right? They're away from God. What about Moses? Listen. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again to the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now stop there for a second. Stop there for a second. In verse 11, what is, is quintessential and basic about Moses' heightened typology here? about the heightened typical function of Moses. What is it? If you're an Israelite, even though the Lord is your God and you belong to him and you are in religious fellowship with him through promises, types, and sacrifices, the Lord is in the tent of meeting and you worship him from a distance, right? The approach is not direct. The, the approach is indirect and distant. Moses gets what? He meets with God face to face as a friend meets with a friend. Now listen, that is not something Aaron gets. When Aaron goes into the most holy place to make sacrifices once a year, what does he see? He sees earthly copies and shadows of things in heaven in the form of the um, Ark of the Covenant, the outstretched wings of the cherubim, the, um, the embroidered uh, references to Eden and, and heaven and, and the glory of that upper register. He sees those things. But what does he not see? He does not see the face of God 
he does not have friend-to-friend fellowship with God, who alone gets that? Moses. Moses is singled out and is a heightened expression of religious fellowship under the theocracy, and no one else gets what Moses has. Now, in that context, as Moses is face to face with God, as Moses speaks to God as friend speaks to friend, precisely there you have to understand this about verse 11. And this is one of my favorite quotes from from Klein. The communion bond Moses has with God, face to face and friend to friend, Meredith Klein calls this, this is in in a book he wrote called Images of the Spirit. Uh, Pastor Boothby can tell you about that book. It's one that you probably need to read in small bits because it's pretty dense, but it's really wonderful. It's worth your devotional time. Klein calls what Moses had, now listen, and tell me if this is just rendered clear to you like that. If it's not, we we need to talk. I need to try to help. Klein says that face-to-face, friend-to-friend fellowship that only Moses had, no one else had under the Mosaic Covenant, is, quote, a prophetic token of what awaits the saints at the resurrection. A prophetic token of what awaits the saints at the resurrection when the saints, the church, comes into the presence of God in heaven and has face-to-face, friend-to-friend fellowship with with the Lord. Klein says, um, in fact, if we want to focus this more um, on Christ, which I'm going to do, Moses, what Moses had on Mount Sinai is a prophetic token, this is me now, of what transpires in Christ when he ascends into heaven. And he sits at the right hand of God and sees the face of the Father and the face of the Spirit in fellowship. So that is the heart I want you to see of the covenant relation, the the essence of our religion, the essence of it, when you strip away all of its accidental features, is face-to-face, friend-to-friend fellowship with the living God. Now, the question is this that I want you to start thinking about. Can you see how what Moses gets on Mount Sinai, which we're about to look at tomorrow, Do you see how it advances beyond what Adam had in the garden? Well, we might not be able to see it really clearly just yet, but we're going to move from verses 12 down to 23 tomorrow, and and here's what I want you to, to appreciate. Moses is going to intercede. This is just to map out what we'll start with in the morning, and then we'll... In verses, there are three um, episodes from verses 12 through 23. Moses intercedes for presence and rest in 14. He intercedes to secure the presence of God as he is known by name in verses 15 through 17. And then in 18 through 23, you should write target of the whole section, what does he ask? He says, God, show me your glory. Reveal to me your glory as a face-to-face, friend-to-friend form of fellowship. And it's in that that we're going to see tomorrow the beginning of what dawns climactically and permanently in the ascended Christ. Mount Sinai is an advancement well beyond the mountain of God in Eden because Moses, as he is united to the promised Messiah, we'll we'll look at this tomorrow. I'll just 
I'll give you a little, a little for, uh, a preview of it. You know what he starts to bear? <laughs> You'll see it. He starts to bear the glory of the Lord in a fellowship bond that is face to face and friend to friend. And he starts to bear in a, in a, in a way that's not permanent something of the glory of the fellowship to come in the ascended Christ. He's advancing beyond Eden, but he's not yet on heavenly Mount Zion. And so what we'll do um, tomorrow and moving in is we're going to start to see now that the key to understanding a large portion of the priesthood of Jesus and what Jesus does in the book of Hebrews is to see the way Moses advances beyond Adam in Eden to this face-to-face, friend-to-friend fellowship with God, and the glory of that communion bond does what? Transfigures his countenance as he begins to bear the glory of the age to come in a provisional and proleptic and impermanent way. And it's through that glory that you're getting a small window in the old covenant into what is going to burst open in the ascension of Christ who brings not just himself but you to that glory presence of God. So what, what we're, what we're going to see here tomorrow is a preview of the fullness that will come in the Melchizedekian priest Moses typifies. Now, I was told to save just a few minutes for questions. I know it's time to go. I doubt there are burning ones right here, but uh, there could be. The, um, any questions on what we've done up to this point? Do you catch the, did I spend, did I go slowly enough to, to get the point through about Moses, Melchizedekian high priest? Isn't that astounding? That's the Shekinah glory. <laughs> and, and, and you know what's so beautiful about it? We'll, we'll talk about this some. That glory is in you now in Christ. Yeah, that's beautiful. It's the glory of fellowship with the Lord. That's the substance of, of our religion. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah. The term face-to-face versus in the introduction, see my face. Yes, sir, we're going to be getting there. Oh, okay. I didn't know if you were going to talk about that or the terminology. Yeah, well, you want me to give you a preview? Let me just give you a preview. <laughs> I love previews. I, I really do because it's a great question. Let me, let me just put it this way, and you tell me if you already see where I'm going. Where was Moses when he saw and experienced face-to-face fellowship with God in 3311? Yeah, on earth ten of meeting, and we're about to move toward Mount Sinai. How long did he get it? I guess I'm cheating here because I haven't told you. Forty days. He's with the Lord on the mountain. But when the Lord in, in later here in um, 33, uh, 20, I believe it is, tells him, you cannot see my face and live, he's subtly shifting the location. You cannot Moses, right now, enter into heaven and see my face and live because someone better than you must first come. See, that's, that's the logic. So, so what he's getting, he's getting face-to-face, friend-to-friend fellowship with God, but where is it? It's housed on earth. It's given in, in a veiled tent of meeting, it's given on an earthly mountain, but it is not the resplendent and effulgent fullness of what is in heaven. That's withheld. And so, until, and the only thing, I'll tell you this about us, I already, I'll tell you this, this is 100% and without debate true. Seeing God's face is the only thing that satisfies the Christian, right? And Moses, we're going to see, Moses gets it, but the conundrum that we're going to have to wrestle with is he gets it provisionally 
and for a short time. And I'll tell you this, I, I, I don't want to spoil too much from tomorrow. I think the hardest moment in Moses' life was when he had to descend that mountain and walk down to a bunch of idolaters, you know? But, um, but, but I, I, I will tell you this, and uh, just to prep it for tomorrow, this is what I believe, and, and you can test this with me, and you know you can always uh, reason with me from the scriptures and say, Lane, I don't know about that one, you know, because we're all mutually submitted to the Lord and his word. But I think, if you ask me, hey, what's the high point of the whole Old Testament? You know what I'd say? We're looking at it. We're looking at it. Moses, face-to-face -face fellowship with God on the mountain. But we're going to have to look at the dynamic of that relationship, the nature of that glory, and figure out why it's transient, why, why it passes so quickly. It's real, but it's transient. We'll look at it. Were there other questions? Thanks for enduring the, the first hour of just... <laughs> um, and we're, we're officially slowing down. Yeah, yeah. And we're going to cover the, the rest of this. It'll take us some time tomorrow. And then we'll have a good bit of time to deal with the book of Hebrews and open it up for some, you know, quite a bit of consideration. Okay, let's pray and then we can dismiss. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ. We thank you for the mountain of God, the Mount Sinai, the Mount Zion. And we thank you for the one who is greater than Adam or Moses, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that you would teach us to see his glory in your word and know him as he makes himself known through it by his spirit. We pray that you would instruct us, edify us, encourage us, and remind us to whom we belong and where we belong in our union with him. Fill us with your spirit now. Guard our hearts and minds tonight and strengthen us that we might glorify you and know you. In Jesus' name, amen.